You don't really have to go to the ends of the earth to witness the effects of climate change, but it does help. Among the scientists who work at the poles, there is not one scintilla of doubt. Basically, the world's ice zones are melting, and they're seeing it. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Fen Montaigne spent five months on the Antarctic Peninsula learning from scientists and observing the Adelie penguins. We'll learn today on Travel with Rick Steves how their harsh and beautiful world is facing an accelerated threat from global warming. We'll also look north with wilderness photographer Stephen Kozlowski. From his years in the Arctic, he's seen how climate change is threatening not only wildlife, but the native people who depend on it for their survival. And we'll have to undergo a lot of changes as the polar bear is going to have to undergo to survive. Come along as we hear what the stark and fragile setting of the polar regions has to teach us in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. They're awesome places of stark, raw beauty in a brutal climate. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Our guests today on Travel with Rick Steves have spent time in the Arctic and Antarctic, photographing, documenting, observing, and listening. Turns out, these frozen places are practically screaming at us to pay attention. Fen Montaigne tells us about his months on the Antarctic Peninsula. He was with a group of scientists observing penguins. We'll hear from him in just a bit. Let's start today with photographer Stephen Kozlowski. His book, filled with gorgeous photos, is called The Last Polar Bear. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, Rick. Yeah, is, is this room cold enough for you? Uh, it's kind of hot in here, but that's okay. Yeah. Okay, you spent eight years working on this book. You're primarily a photographer. Mm-hmm. And yeah. what, what was your goal? What, what, what set you out? Well, what set me out in the beginning, some 16 years ago, uh, and I've been photographing the Arctic about 12 and polar bears for about eight, and then I got together on this book project about four years ago was just the uh, the love to want to do photography. I was looking for a career, which I still kind of haven't managed to make happen. I was a biologist at the time, and I wasn't really interested in the master's and Ph.D. program and then eventually getting into administration. So I thought, oh, what the heck, you know, young and dumb, I'll pick up a camera and find a way to do that. And I kind of wandered to Alaska and, and did odd jobs up there and odd jobs down here and photographed whenever I could. And eventually I found my way up to the Arctic and then I was living in a station wagon on the Hall Road, and I wanted to photograph somewhere different. It was important to me if I was going to do this, and the reason I went to nature was I find a certain peace in it, just sitting and waiting and watching and learning that uh, many people haven't done it. So that which brought me up to the Arctic, and from there I met people, and they um, they moved me in the direction of villages where eventually I bumped into the polar bear a little over eight years ago. Now, the polar bear, people have an emotional attachment to these bears. I mean, it's just a perfect kind of uh, heart tugger. You see a bear on a melting piece of ice if you want to become an environmentalist. What is it about polar bears that has this sort of warmth and fascination with humans? Um, that's a great question. You know, it, it's almost a question that, to me, it doesn't even really need an answer. Often you'll ask uh, Nubian people, what about this, what about that? And, well, they say, I don't know about this or that. I know about maybe, you know, this one thing. Uh, maybe it's okay not to have answers to everything. And the polar bear is kind of that mythical animal. It, it's a huge creature. It's very loving. It's very social. It's very beautiful. And it manages to live in an environment to us that is uh, almost like the moon, but somehow it's able to survive up You know, there. I think that must be part of it. Well, there's 25,000 polar bears, they figure, in existence right now? Yeah, that's that's the numbers I've been hearing. Scattered pretty equally across the polar region, just in that whole big circle? Um, I think the majority of them are in the high Canadian Arctic. And then they believe there's about four to 8,000 in Alaska, off the coast, of course. And they believe it's closer to 4,000. But you have to understand that the Arctic is such a difficult place to work and study. It's really hard to nail these numbers down as definite numbers. They're all good questions, but there's a lot of unknowns with them. What you were able to do is capture these polar bears, like young baby polar bears playing and dedicated parents and loving families. I mean, you can almost see people in these bears. Well, I think that they are extremely intelligent. And a lot of times we look, as far as my opinion goes, we look at ourselves as being above things in, in the world, in the natural world. And I think it's a perfect example in a lot of ways that these bears are above us in quite a few ways. Including latitude. Including latitude, exactly. I mean, is there actually a demarcation where people stop living and bears start living? Or is there a latitude belt where there are bears and Arctic people living together? Um, there is a belt where they live together. Because what the polar bear wants to do is it wants to live on ice, first of all. And second of all, it wants to live where there are going to be its favorite prey, which is the ringed seal. So generally, these areas are where the continental shelf jets out past the land. So the water is kind of shallow. 
it allows for the carbon matter, because carbon matter makes up all life, to start a cyclical cycle to make up this web of life. We have carbon, we have algae, we have small invertebrates, eventually fish and eventually seals, and then eventually the polar bear that eats them. When you get past the continental shelf, you drop off to thousands of feet deep, and it's known as what's a carbon abyss. So it's really not a place a polar bear would choose to be. It would like to be in this area of continental shelf around the islands and around the coastline. But that's quickly changing now because this ice is disappearing extremely fast. That's the whole, that's the whole threat to their existence. Exactly. Now, so if you put a polar bear, if you just planted him in the middle of Greenland where it's cold enough and icy enough, but it's in the middle of land and there's no sea in sight, would they have a difficult time living? Oh, absolutely. I mean, they um, they want to eat fat. I mean, that's what they're after. Unless it's a starving animal. You know, starving people are as dangerous as starving animals because some people are going to do whatever they have to to survive. Some people are going to lay down and die. And the same with certain polar bears. But if you're around uh, well-fed polar bears, they're not really going to attack people for one reason. We don't have that much fat on us. And that's really what they're looking for. They're looking for blubber. And I was uh, <laughs> I was sleeping in my tent. I had a bear slide down my tent and put a paw on my head and shoulder. And it was only playing, luckily for me. And I rolled out screaming and yelling and scared this animal off because in a lot of ways, they're very shy animals, too. So if if Laurel and Hardy were were hiking across the Arctic, one of them would be endangered. Probably, yeah. Yeah. Now, are are polar bears... Especially if they're laying down like a seal. So that's a big issue. Are they considered a a marine mammal or a terrestrial mammal? They're considered a marine... They're classified as a marine mammal. Oh, really? So they're protected under the Marine Mammal Protection Act. So what's another marine mammal? Uh, a whale. A whale. That's sure. it. That's the most famous marine mammal, right? Oh, and, absolutely. And seals. Seals, yeah. So seals, whales, and polar bears. Generally, anything that lives in the water and breathes air. But here we have a polar bear, which lives on top of frozen water and breathes air. There you go. Are their yeah. bodies designed a certain way that makes them more uh, effective in water? Oh, yeah. They do have certain abilities in their paws and what have you to swim and use their back legs like rudders more so than a grizzly bear. And they came from grizzly bears and they can interbreed with grizzly bears and have viable offspring, which is one of the few separate species animals that can get together. That's interesting. That's sort of, if you agree in evolution, that's sort of taking it from dry land to the sea, whereas tetrapods and all that kind of thing went from like sea swimming creatures to land, right? That's exactly what happened. So you've got to take a bear, like the bears we know, Mm -hmm. all of a sudden they have to live in the water and they evolve to have uh, fins for hands and rudders for tails. Yeah, absolutely. A polar bear has more of a rudder effective tail than than a grizzly bear? Well, its feet, it'll use its feet as a rudder when it swims, but its paws has, from my understanding, has slight webbing in it to help it swim. It has hollow fur and it, it's colorless. Its fur isn't actually white. It's colorless fur. And uh, its its look can be either derived from what it's eating, you know, the oil and the food it's eating, if it's eating whale blubber or if it's in a big ukaruk, which is a large bearded seal. Where there's, so you have the ring seal, which is about 150 pounds, known as a nut chuck, and the, uh, the bearded seal, um, which is about 750 pounds. The polar bear hunts both these animals, which migrate through different parts of the Arctic, up into the Arctic during different so parts of the So for polar year. bears, dinner is at sea. Dinner is on the ice. On the ice. On okay. the ice, yeah. Sea creatures. On sea the creatures. It, it'll take a beluga whale when it can from time to time, such as uh, in, the, in the fall time, sometimes whales misjudge when they have to leave and they'll get stuck in small areas of open water and they'll keep a little hole open. And as it freezes, a polar bear will come to this area and take advantage of it and rip the breathing hole and bleed the beluga whale out and then drag this smaller whale up onto the ice where not only it'll eat it, but its friend the Arctic fox will eat it and many gulls and what have wow. you. This is Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're traveling in polar regions today. We're talking with Stephen Kozlowski. And Stephen has a website called lefteyepro.com, L-E-F-T-E-Y-E-P-R-O, lefteyepro.com, where he collects his photographs and uh, explains his book. It's a beautiful book. I had so much fun, Stephen, just familiarizing myself with your work. The Last Polar Bear, it's called. Let's talk a little more about the just the polar bear's design. They live in such a cold environment, is there something about their fur that keeps them warm? They've got black skin, right? Yeah, they do have black skin, and this allows them to attract heat. They have hollow fur, which also acts as insulation, and then they have a a wonderful layer of blubber as long as they're getting enough food. And that goes back to what they're usually trying to eat, you know, which is blubber, whether it's from a whale or from a seal. They have more of a problem overheating than being cold. So Wow. Now, this blubber business is interesting. I, I saw in your book... The local um, 
what's the political? It's not Eskimo. What are the people up there called? Inuit? Uh, Inuit in, in uh, Canada, Inupiaq in Alaska. But in Alaska, um, my uh, Inupiaq friends also reference the term Eskimo quite a bit. And if you looked on the Barrow website for the Alaska Eskimo Whale Commission, it, you know. So- Eskimo's okay. Uh, I think in Alaska, it's okay, but it's definitely not okay in Canada. Ah, really? Because mm-hmm. I, I want to say Eskimo, but I don't yeah. want to be insulting. Yeah, and I have gotten phone calls from other interviews from people who said, and I said, well, then how come on the website, Barrow has Alaska Eskimo Whale Commission when that's their own whale commission? And Yeah. In Alaska, the people of the Arctic, the indigenous people of the Arctic can be called Eskimos. In my understanding of Your it, understanding. yes. Now, I was getting at Blubber. I saw Eskimos in Alaska and uh, Inuit people in Canada pulling giant blocks of blubber from whales, mm-hmm. just like sleds across the ice. Sure. And that's what the polar bears eat also, the same thing. Yeah. Traditionally, the Nupiat people would take the blubber and render it down and to use it for a dipping sauce or oil, or they would burn it and use it for fuel. But now that's not needed so much. So what they're really after is the skin layer on top, which is the muktuk. It's called muktuk, and it's, it's quite tasty. And that's usually boiled with just a little bit of fat. Then the mass amount of blubber is kind of thrown away, well, thrown away to the bears and to the other animals that utilize it. And then also the meat is like steak meat, and they utilize that. And it's a very important part of their diet and their tradition. It holds them together as a people in a lot of ways. And uh, when Sort of like the buffalo would have been to the Plains Indians. Exactly, like the buffalo. And you think, well, don't they have stores? Don't they have shops? Don't they mm-hmm. have food? Yeah. Well, yeah, they have some of these things, except usually it's frozen processed foods and it's extremely expensive. So it's important for them you know, to That's something your book their... taught me. I, I, it was so interesting to think that way up on the northern slope of Alaska, gasoline for your car is very expensive. Because they're shipping it all south and there's not enough population up there to process it, right? Well, yeah, by the time they move it up. What an irony. They couldn't just tap into it because it has to be process somehow. Yeah, you know, so they pump it down to Valdez, and I believe there's some kind of refinery down there, and then it gets barged back up or flown back up on a big plane, and by the end of that, it's it went up from three bucks a gallon to six bucks a gallon. So uh, a little bit of whale oil might be helpful. Uh, Yeah, Yeah. they might be going back to that. One of the most um, striking shots I saw in your book was a shot of a of a skinny, hungry bear. Didn't get his blubber, and he was he was emaciated. That must be heart tugging when you see that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's part of nature, you know, that not everything survives, just like, you know, things are always dying and going back to the earth. And, uh, you know, I think what's what what is a little sad in a way is uh, I think we have a great society and we have a lot of wonderful people. And, I, and I've been lucky to work with a lot of wonderful people, no wonderful people. But the path we've seemed to have chosen and the direction we're heading is so far or trying to disconnect us from nature to the point that uh, the way we live and consume is not only destroying the polar bear's habitat, which is that coastal ice, but eventually will unravel habitats all over the world, raise water levels, and we can see lots of people dying on islands and having to move. And the future hundred years of this planet is going to be precarious. More on The Last Polar Bear with Stephen Koslowski is coming right up. And Fen Montaigne tells us how the penguins are faring on the other end of the planet. We're at 877-333-7425. From pole to shining pole, it's travel with Rick Steves. We're learning how things are changing in the polar regions today on Travel with Rick Steves. We'll look at the plight of the penguins in Antarctica in just a bit. Right now, we're talking with photographer Stephen Koslowski, who's released an impressive collection of photos and essays from Arctic experts. 
The book's called The Last Polar Bear, Facing the Truth of a Warming World. This must have been a, a fascinating period of discovery for you. Over eight years you're working on this book. Yes, continued. Did, did you know a lot about polar bears when you started? No, I, I knew nothing about polar bears. And I really um, had no sense that I would end up photographing polar bears in Alaska because I thought it was uh, too far removed and too difficult to do. I, As I said, I was just living on the haul road in a station wagon just to try to photograph the Arctic and, and do something different. And it was only by accident that I was thrown into a village and a bush pilot took me in and let me wash dishes and help him unload planes that I understood that there were polar bears around and then over years made friends with uh, Inupiat people who would take me out on the land and kind of take me under their wing, adopt me into their families. And it was through this that I was able to really learn of the secrets of this magnificent environment that is off the coast of Alaska. And, and eventually when I started this project full bore, I realized it wasn't just a project about the polar bear, but it was a project about this uh, coastal continental shelf ice. And the project covered from Herschel Island all the way in the east, which is in Canada, all the way to Point Hope, uh, 850 miles away. Point Hope is an amazing place, and they had trade routes with Russia in the Far East for thousands of years across the ice. It's a place that when I first encountered it, didn't even seem real. You know, nothing could live here. You know, it's five below zero. My fingertips are freezing, you know, but... There is so much life in this place, and it's so harsh, but at the same time, it's extremely fragile, and it's changing very quickly. There's this whole Nanook business. What is that? Oh, Nanook is the uh, Inupiat word for polar bear, and it's an am amazing language that is, uh, it seems to be disappearing, and it's a difficult language. I know bits and pieces of, of words, but the Inupiat people are a lot about having a good time and, and laughing, and they're definitely a special special group Does of people. Does their culture survive with all the craziness of this modern world and economic unviability of trying to keep their kids in touch with the modern world, but still living up off of the land in the north? You know, it's changing, but it does survive. And, and them being able to live their traditional ways of life as far as, say, spring whaling and, and things and hunting whales. I mean, this is a big part of it. But they're definitely a part of our society now, too, which is uh, a society that is rapidly moving ahead and changing. I feel that we live in a society that's moving in more of a straight line where traditional societies and nomadic societies maybe move more in a circle, you know, like nature moves in a circle, you'd like to think of it. And unfortunately, this fast-moving, uh, straight-wood movement of a society is maybe uh, changing the whole planet along with it. And that's unfortunate in some And ways. if you happen to be a nomadic society, it's almost like you're breaking the rules. It's like it's not allowed to be nomadic in yeah. this modern context. And if you look at the history of the Inupiat people in Alaska and the Inuit people in Canada, you know, after World War II and right around that area, they were forced into schools uh, down in Oregon, taken from their parents. You know, there was really a movement to break their culture and break them as a people. In 1972, wow. in, in school in Barter Island, Kaktovic kids were hit with a ruler for speaking their own language. My friend Alice Faith uh, was five years old and went to school and was hit with a ruler for speaking uh, her Inupiaq language. And that's just yesterday, really, when you think about it. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Stephen Kuslowski. He writes a book called The Last Polar Bear. Stephen's website, if you want to see some of the photographs we've been talking about, is lefteyepro.com, L-E-F-T-E-Y-E-P-R-O.com. So tell me about this. You, you traveled a lot to do this book, and it must take patience. Anytime you're filming wildlife, it takes patience, right? Yeah, or you talk yourself into believing it's going to happen the next minute, you know, and the next minute's always the next minute. So what happens? You're camped out where you think a polar bear is going to come out of his uh, den or whatever, and, and you've committed three or four hours to this, and you probably get so invested in it, you can't... You can't give it up until it happens. Well, I spent 20 days in a tent outside a polar bear den hoping for it to come out. And my uh, my friend Jack Kayatuk, who's about the same age as me, who's taken me around the Arctic and has really taught me a lot, took me in the fall to an area he knew that where there's some polar bears that denned. We found a den that was a polar bear was in it in early winter. And then the following spring, him, myself, and my friend Bruce Langasuck went back with our sleds and snow machines. And we built a camp. And then we built an igloo close to where we thought the den would be. And then my friend Jack went back to the village to get some stuff. On his way back, his snow machine broke down, and at 40 below zero, into the wind, he had to walk home two days, and he almost died. That's how harsh this country is. I was coming out of the tent 10 minutes a day then. And eventually, after 12 days, the storm passed, and you're wondering, what are you doing here? You know, this is insane. You know, you, you think you're You're sitting in a tent for, for two, three weeks, coming out 10 minutes a day, waiting for the bear to wake up and come out of his hibernation. Well, you don't even know if the bear is still there, all right? You know? And you didn't even think about just setting a little alarm clock and tossing it in there? Uh, we didn't know when the bear would come out. We didn't know <laughs> if the bear was there. And what if just... you dozed off and you missed him? 
Uh, it could have Good question. It, it actually did happen in a way because the bear, we thought we were, you know, smarty pants, uh, my Eskimo <laughs> friend and myself, that we had this igloo built and we were sneaking back and forth from the tent. And uh, eventually the bear broke ground and we realized she was there, but she never really came out at first. She was getting the cubs used to the cold. So yeah. we kept waiting in the igloo and we'd see a head pop up and nothing. And then the day would go by. So eventually I was back in our tent, which is about 450 yards or so away. And I came out to get something out of the sled. And there she was at night with her two cubs watching our camp as I'd been watching her. I turned and ran back in the tent. She turned and ran back in her hole. And then eventually I went closer into the igloo the next day, and they all came out, and they spent several days out and amongst the uh, the snow. Must have been a field day for you with your zoom lens. It, it was quite amazing. I cracked my lens, actually, because of the cold. I had moisture and heat. So, I, I mean, it was... Uh, Frustrating God, when that happened. Well, God gave us a good one, but he kept us honest. <laughs> now, a couple of questions. First of all, are polar bears afraid when they see you? If you give them no reason to be afraid? Um. It, it depends on the bear. You know, okay. it really depends on the bear and it depends on the situation. In certain situations, they'll walk right up to you and be quite brazen. In other situations, it's extremely difficult to get close to them. When you're photographing a mother with uh, cubs, you want to make sure you have somewhat of a safe distance and you don't scare her because you don't want to run her off or anything like that. But generally, um, my experiences and everybody's experiences can be different is that, um, you can scare them off pretty easy unless they're really on the go for food. Do they have good eyesight? They have pretty good eyesight, but really it's it's in their nose that they're, they're yeah, led you by. You said in your book they could smell a, a seal camp 10 miles away or oh, something. Oh, further, yeah. Further than that. They yeah. can smell the seals. But you have to remember it's on the wind too. So, you know, if something's a mile away and the wind's not right. Can they smell a human? Smell it. Oh, yeah. They can smell a person. Some more than others? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Especially huh. me after three weeks. <laughs> three weeks in the tent. Were you camouflaged to, to, so they wouldn't see you? Did you wear white and so on? Uh, we had a white tent. And then, of course, we made the igloo out of uh, snow blocks. So that was white. But um, huh. but the bear knew exactly sure. where we not were dumb. and who we yeah. were. Yeah. <laughs> not <laughs> dumb at all. <laughs> I saw him we playing with your tripod in the book. That was kind of cute. Sure. That's how curious they are. You know, I sat there and I photographed. And this was more... More in the fall time, winter time, a mother with a cub. Uh-huh. Eventually, you know, she was wondering what the heck I was doing. And unaggressively, she walked over and started looking through my camera, wondering, you know, what is this guy? I, You know, who knows what she was thinking? But she looked through the back of my camera, the front of the camera, through the lens, uh. <laughs> you know, almost wondering what was I doing staring at her through this thing. And eventually, I just she just backed away and let me go back to my camera at that point. I'm talking with Stephen Kozlowski, and Stephen has spent... A lot of time camping out in snowfields, waiting for the bears to wake up and come out of their dens. He's written a book called The Last Polar Bear, a photographic journey. Stephen, this is just fascinating. And while you're up there, you must have learned a lot about the local culture, the Inuit or Eskimo culture. How does the bear tie in with their culture today? I would imagine, just like the Plains Indians and the buffalo were intimately intertwined, traditionally, Nanook and the Eskimos would have been intertwined. Does that survive today? Yes, it, it does survive. They still sleep on polar bear rugs in their camps out on the ice, which keeps you quite warm. They still utilize the meat as far as eating it, and they even uh, utilize the animal's claws and what have you for artwork, which is something they've always traditionally done and been able to trade over time. And polar bear mittens, I saw one of them. Yeah, there. extremely warm. Is that good? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, your hands will be warm at 80 below zero. As a photographer and an explorer, did you find them helpful as guides? They would know where the polar bears were and so on? Oh, yes. You know, hunters and what have you of the far north, like any hunter anywhere else, has to know its game and where it might be. We got Norman on the phone in Ottawa, Ontario. Hi, Norman. Thanks for your call. Hi. Thanks for taking it. Yeah. You know, you mentioned this earlier, uh, alluded to the the sensitivity of the environment in the Arctic, and I've been lucky enough to travel up there a couple of times. With the changing environment up there and the warming trends and the damage that's being caused, how do you get the information across to people without bringing more people up there to see what's going on, hence causing more damage to a fragile ecosystem? It's it's like a vicious circle. Yeah, I mean, I think everything we do is a vicious circle. I mean, it's part of our society. That's, that's a huge problem with it. Um, we're a great society, but we're headed in bad directions. And I mean, I could say joking around, we'll just get the book and look at the pictures, right? But that's a problem I have with what I do, too. You know, I go up to these places, I uh, I take images, and then what do I do? I encourage people to go there. So um, I don't know that it's a problem with people going to the Arctic as much as that we need to change the way we live and we consume things. But that's a big part of how we have our economy, too. It's an economy built on consumption. So, you know, 
at the end of the day, I'm just a simple nature photographer. I, you know, they're confusing issues and questions to deal with. Well, one of the other things, too, I think that concerns me personally a lot is the fact that the warming trend that we see these days is melting more and more ice, as you mentioned, and unfortunately, maybe in some ways, making the Arctic more accessible to more people. Well, this is very true. There's a lot of tourism that's going through the Arctic now. Um, last fall, when I was by the Canadian border, a sailboat came through from the east. There's already been ships up there probing uh, scientists looking for... There's supposed to be a huge amount of oil off the Canadian Arctic coast and the Alaska Arctic coast, right? Because millions of years ago, there were forests, and now these forests decomposed under the water. And there's supposed to be huge deposits of oil. So I think... As time goes on, I mean, the Arctic is going to really be industrialized. And at some point, who knows, there might even be shipping through the Arctic when the ice is pulled back far enough that they decide to go that route instead of the Panama Canal. I think that's still kind of a ways off, though. So, Norman, you're from Ottawa. What's the general take in Canada? Is there sort of a exciting gung-ho, it's thawing out, let's go up there and make some money? Or is there a feeling in Canada that global warming is a tragedy? I think it's definitely a split feeling here. The, the government up here, the conservative government, has announced plans to try and exploit the resources there and argue that they can do it without damaging the environment. But, of course, uh, a goodly segment of the population just doesn't think that that's possible. The two simply can't go hand in hand. Right. You know, that's the conundrum we face. The wealth is there. The sources of energy are there. Uh, what do we do? Do we go for the traditional route or do we you know, try and divert ourselves and look for alternate sources of energy and alternate ways of creating energy. So it's, it's, a, it's a big discussion point here now, especially with the fact that everything's warming, everything's melting, and everything's becoming more accessible. Norman, thanks for your, your call and your thoughtful insights there. Thanks very much. You bet. Stephen, the polar bear really puts a face on climate change, doesn't it? Absolutely. You say the polar bear's story is ultimately our story. What do you mean by that? I mean that uh, in two ways. Uh, polar bear is one of the last top predators that it still lives nomadic in its environment and it's still free. And as it loses its environment, we too will slowly lose, as what we know, our environment and our environmental change. And we'll have to undergo a lot of changes as the polar bear is going to have to undergo to survive. And it's going to be quite difficult. Powerful lessons from your cold but enlightening years in the Arctic. Stephen Kowalski, author of The Last Polar Bear. Thanks again. Fascinating information. Thanks so much for having me, Rick. Let's head south now, way south to the other end of the Earth, to explore the Antarctic with Fen Montaigne, author of Fraser's Penguins, A Journey to the Future in Antarctica. Fen Montaigne, thanks for joining us. Uh, Rick, it's a pleasure to be speaking with you. You know, there's lots of books on polar bears and penguins. How is your book, Fraser's Penguins, different than the others? Well, my book is really a tale of the five months I spent uh, in this beautiful spot of Antarctica, the Antarctic Peninsula, which, as you probably know, juts up towards the southern tip of South America. And it recounts the work of a very dedicated um, ecologist and penguin expert named Bill Frazier, who has been in that area since 1974, not year-round, of course, but, but many months a year, He's been studying seabirds and penguins, and in that time, this part of Antarctica has warmed really faster than any other place on Earth. So the book is really part adventure book, it's part travel book, it's part book about climate change, although the climate change aspects don't really come in, in until the end of the book. Uh, but it's basically, um, in some ways, a, a travel book, uh, similar to one I did earlier uh, about Russia. The title of the book, Fraser's Penguins, has the subtitle, A Journey to the Future in Antarctica. What do you mean by that subtitle? Well, I think what you're seeing along the Antarctic Peninsula, uh, which is about 900 miles long, at least on the northern half of it, and, of course, in the Arctic, is the poles, for reasons we can go into if you want later, are warming much, much faster than the other regions of the Earth. Uh, this place where I was, the temperatures have gone up in midwinter, the winter temperatures, by 11 degrees Fahrenheit since 1950. They've been recorded very um, scrupulously by British scientists and now Ukrainian scientists. So really what you're looking at in these polar regions and what Bill Fraser, the scientist, has witnessed is this very rapid warming that is rippling through ecosystems, uh, particularly this ecosystem, which is an, a system based on ice and sea ice and creatures like the Adelie penguins that are dependent on sea ice 
And so we're, I think we're really seeing in a place like Palmer Station or parts of the Arctic the rapid and sweeping changes that I think the rest of us, in fact, I know the rest of us are going to be experiencing in the 21st century because uh, uh, the planet's warming. So like a canary in a mine shaft or something, Antarctica's giving us a little peek at our future, perhaps. I think it absolutely is. And it's also a very interesting ecosystem to study because in many ways it's not as complex, doesn't have as many moving parts as, say, a tropical forest with so many tens of thousands of species. Basically, the Antarctic is fascinating because even though it does not have a great abundance of species, it has incredible quantities of penguins, crab-eater seals, uh, the whales not so much because of what whaling did to them, but many other seabirds. In fact, astonishingly, the best estimate of the number of seabirds that uh, reproduce, mate, nest within the Southern Ocean Antarctic area per year is 75 million. So because it is the only permanently uninhabited continent on, on Earth, there are only science stations there, there's no other human habitation, because it's protected by the Arctic Treaty, it really gives you a sense of how fertile and amazing hmm. nature can be when it is left alone uh, by man. Uh, so it was it, it was just an absolute delight to be there and just watch this abundance of life. Then when you say that there's an abundance of life in a place that's pretty much ice shelf, except for, I guess, this one peninsula where the scientific stations are, you talk about seabirds, seals, and penguins. When you think of the colors of those animals, how has the environment and evolution shaped the colors? What sort of conclusions can you draw there? Well, it's very interesting. It's actually something I haven't given much thought to. Obviously, the penguins have a, a white shirt front, if you will. The Adelie is the classic tuxedoed penguin, uh, the black back. That may well be evolutionary in the way many salmon are colored, or most all salmon, in that when predators are looking at them from below, perhaps that lighter front makes them harder to see, and, and when predators are looking at them from above, that darker back. Uh, helps them. But, you know, I'm not, that's an area I'm uh, getting a little out of my depth on, the sort of but that's colors. Very, and... That's very interesting, because when you look at them, they would be camouflaged from below, and their greatest predator is the seals, right? Yeah, they're, they're only, really, their only serious marine predator is the leopard seal, which is a, another remarkable creature. Um, occasionally, the larger penguin species, like the emperor, which was featured in the March of the Penguins, uh, they are preyed upon by killer whales, which, of course, you're very familiar with out in your part of the country. But primarily the main marine predators, the leopard seal, and the the main terrestrial predator of the penguin chicks and eggs uh, is the skua, which is a wonderful bird in the gulf family, but it really is much more a hawk-like uh, creature, very fierce and uh, delightful to watch it hmm. go about its business. We're learning about life in Antarctica and what it can teach us about our own lives in less extreme latitudes with Fen Montaigne. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Ich reise mit Rick Steves. I'm Ursula Klaus from Vienna and that was, in Viennese German, I travel with Rick Steves. Ich reise mit Rick Steves. Thank you. We're learning about the effects of climate change on Antarctica right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guest is Fen Montaigne. His book is called Fraser's Penguins. He chronicles how the Antarctic Peninsula is one of the fastest warming places on the planet and how the changes to the world of the Adelie penguins are just a preview of what threatens to affect us all. Of course, these tuxedo penguins are just so lovable visually, but you have to be pretty tough to survive in the brutal Antarctic environment, I would think. Are, are these penguins tougher than they look? They are very tough. Bill Fraser remembers uh, on one of the field seasons in recent decades when he was at Palmer Station, he was walking past a penguin colony, and uh, he came across an Adelie. Hard to tell if it was a male or a female because they're very similar in size. And the Adelie had been attacked by a leopard seal, and that leopard seal had, in essence, ripped the penguin's breast apart from its sort of body cavity and neck. And Bill could look right down inside and see that penguin's uh, lungs working. And remarkably, that penguin survived and actually raised a pair of chicks. So they are, hmm. Fraser says, they're the toughest animals he's ever seen. And, and uh, they evolved in a polar desert. You know, the Antarctica, for the most part, the peninsula tends to be 
a little more maritime and wetter. But for the most part, the, the continent itself, which is one and a half times the size of the U.S. and has ice as deep as three miles, is a very, very dry, cold place. And so the penguins evolved in this polar desert, and they're beautifully adapted to it. And one of the climate change stories is that the Adelis are a sea ice species. In other words, just like the polar bear in the Arctic, the Adelis use the sea ice in winter as a feeding platform to get to these very productive parts of the ocean. And as the sea ice disappears, which it is in this part of Antarctica, that's causing a lot of problems for the penguins. And Mm -hmm. um, their evolutionary behavior is uh, they're getting out of sync with the the environment that they evolved in because the environment is warming so quickly. Well, I want to talk about climate change uh, more in a little little while, but I want to stick with this, just the whole fascinating notion of these penguins. You only find penguins in the Antarctic, right? No, actually penguins are found in the entire southern hemisphere. Uh, There's about, depending who's counting and what are species and subspecies, you know, about 18 or 19 species. They're found in Australia, New Zealand. The northernmost penguins, which I'm sure some of your travelers have seen, are in the Galapagos. Ah. But what's really interesting about penguins is all of those species which evolved in the very productive waters of the South Atlantic Pacific and the Southern Ocean, they are all dependent for their food on these icy ocean currents that emanate in Antarctica and then go along the bottom of the ocean and then in these upwellings rise to the surface and with that upwelling bring a tremendous amount of uh, nutrition and food. So Mm -hmm. even though the penguins are widely scattered there in South Africa, they are all linked, if you will, to sort of the mother continent by these cold ocean currents. And they they have a remarkable homing ability, don't they? they? Don't they migrate thousands of miles to go back to where they were hatched? It is absolutely unbelievable, and I tell a story in my book that a U.S. researcher named Richard Penny, I believe it was 1961, he snatched from Wilkesland, which sort of faces Australia in Antarctica, five male Adelie penguins, non-breeders. He didn't want to interfere with their breeding. He put them in canvas sacks. He had them flown about 2,400 miles away to McMurdo Station, the U.S. base, where they were released on the Ross Sea. They flew, so they couldn't leave little breadcrumbs or anything. No, they they left no thread, no breadcrumbs. They were flown in a, I don't know huh. the plane, it wasn't said, but they were literally flown in a probably a military transport in that era in Antarctica. Whoa. And then released by the, the Ross Sea, the Southern Ocean, and eight or nine months later, three of the five had made it back to their native colony where they were snatched. Now, think about that, Rick. I mean, it's one thing to fly somewhere and then find your way back on your own steam, but to be flown somewhere and let go and find your way back is is absolutely remarkable. By the way, I'm talking with Ben Montaigne, and his book is Fraser's Penguins, A Journey to the Future in Antarctica. When we think about penguins, I mean, you always see these photographs of huge flocks of penguins. By the way, are they herds or gaggles or what are they called? Well, actually, you call them colonies, and uh, a colony is an individual grouping of penguins, and then they are usually found on what's known as a rookery, which is customarily an island that has numerous penguin colonies on it. Now, this colony implies some sort of um, society, and it, it always I'm impressed by their unique sort of way of mating and their family loyalty and so on. Talk a little bit about the community. The community, it's interesting, colonial seabirds... Uh, nest in groups for a number of reasons. One is protection from predators. One, and this is very pertinent in the Antarctic, is that there isn't much nesting space. As you said earlier in the show, uh, Antarctica pretty much is all ice, and there's only this thin band, a strip of, of coastline that has this pebbled ground, at least in summer, that the, the Adelis use the pebbles to make their nests. So they nest very close together, 22 inches from the center of, generally, on average, from the center of one nest to another. The males is really interesting. The males, as the light lengthens in the spring, Adelis get ready to go to their native colonies, just like a salmon would to its native river. The males migrate uh, home, if you will, first. They wait for the females. If that male's partner from the year before shows up in a reasonable length of time, a week, a number of days, they will mate once again. If that female doesn't show up, the male will take up with a new female. And if the old female happens to come back late, the two females usually engage in quite a vigorous fight with a lot of flipper thumping and pecking and down flying. 
Um, and then they mate with the male standing on the female's back. Females lay the eggs, and then the males stay with the eggs for a week or two while the female goes out and forages for usually for Antarctic krill, which is a shrimp-like creature. Hmm. And the males often will go without eating between the migration, the nest building, the mating, etc. Those males can go many, many weeks without eating. They can lose a third of their body mass easily, and these poor things only weigh 9 to 10 pounds. And then you've got this frenetic season where the chicks are hatched out. They're fed by the parents with one parent staying with the chick, another parent going out into the sea to forage. And it sort of culminates um, as the chicks get bigger. Both parents have to go out at the same time. The chicks gather together in these big groups called creches, just like the creche of a manger. And eventually, um, after about 50 or 55 days, the parents can no longer continue feeding their two chicks and keep themselves alive. And the parents just take off. They just split. And the chicks kind of stand around. By this time, they've grown adult feathers. And they kind of look at each other going, you know, where's dinner? They're very like adolescents. And eventually the chicks wander down to the sea and plunge in. And it's this remarkable instinctual intelligence that they have. They just are so remarkable in how all of this is is ingrained in their genes through evolution. They know how to, you know, everything from migration to the very end point where the chicks go in. And with no tutoring from their parents like a duckling with a duck, they figure out how to forage and keep themselves alive. It's It's remarkable. Well, with this sophisticated sort of mating uh, ritual, you'd think their population would be doing quite well, but actually that's that's not the case. You wrote about in your book how the population is, is dropping. Well, yes, populations in the northwestern Antarctic Peninsula, which is the place that is warm so quickly, have fallen at numerous rookeries, n- numerous colonies over hundreds of miles by about 80 to 85 percent. This is largely because they're missing that uh, reliable sea ice platform. There's three months, fewer months of sea ice per year covering that part of the Southern Ocean than there were 30 years ago. So the populations are in a steady decline. Bill Fraser expects that by the end of his lifetime, he's now 60, there probably will be few, if any, Adelie penguins left in that particular corner of Antarctica. So, Fenn, you spent uh, an Arctic summer, which would be winter in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, five months working with Bill Frazier, a man who's just been passionate about studying penguins for three decades and to better understand our environment. Were you inspired by him? What's it like to work with a man so dedicated to to one study? He is uh, inspirational uh, to to me. I was part of his team uh, working as an unpaid member of his team, even though I'm a journalist. Bill has just, uh, I think like many people who work in Antarctica, he was overcome and just inevitably attracted to the incredible beauty of the place and the wildness of the place. He's a guy who lives in the in the wilds of Montana, hunts his own food and all that. And he just, the place got under his skin, just like it did under Ernest Shackleton's skin. He's extremely, treats his, his field team members really well, gives them health insurance, and uh, is incredibly fit. Uh, the kind of guy that if you were in a crisis, if your boat was capsizing in these frigid waters, he is just the guy uh, you would want as your team leader. He really inspires confidence. I'm trying to envision your work with him. Uh, for example, I'm sure you've got this incredible cold weather gear. How does your gear age when you're out working in Antarctica? Well, actually, in this part of Antarctica, because it's always been the warmest part and it's getting so much warmer, Often in January, it would be 40 degrees, uh, which is warmer than it should be. Uh, but basically, we would dress in layers. We'd have rain pants, uh, fleece pullovers, and rain uh, jackets. And in essence, what we did every day was hop in little rubber Zodiac boats and zip around to uh, six or eight different islands, counting penguins, counting seabirds, putting satellite transmitters on them to see where they were feeding, sampling what they were eating, weighing the birds. It was just a good a thorough ecological study of the number of these birds and what sort of health they were in. You wrote in your book about how a penguin actually beaked you and drew blood right through your gear. Well, they are, you know, very cute from afar, but just like humans, they have their own little physical space and their limitations. <laughs> and um, I had to go in when we were we were fetching some eggs and, and weighing the eggs and measuring them, and I 
I got a little too close to a penguin, and I had a bunch of layers on. It was early in the season, and that thing walked right up to me. I'm six foot three, was, showed no fear, and just jabbed its beak right into my knee through about four layers of clothing, <laughs> broke the skin. Uh, there was, you know, it wasn't bleeding profusely, but they're incredibly courageous. And when you grab them to put a satellite transmitter on them, it's like 10 pounds of totally electric muscle and energy. They are the strongest creatures I've ever held for a creature of that size. I want to talk just for a second about climate change because you're working with people down there that are immersed in it. How can one part of the planet be warming faster than another part? I mean, you mentioned the average temperature has, has increased 11 degrees since 1950. In the winter and 5 degrees year-round. That's really striking. Is there any doubt with people like Bill Fraser about climate change? You know, it's interesting, Rick. Uh, among the scientists who work at the polls, there is not one scintilla of doubt. Basically, the world's ice zones are melting, and they're seeing it. And Bill and the other, his colleagues down there at Palmer Station are, are frustrated when they, they see that we're not doing much to do something about this. And they really are sentinels. They are out there on the extremes of, of warming, and they're trying to get the message back that, hey, you know, we should pay attention to this and start changing our behavior. And uh, that's certainly one of the themes of my book. It was fascinating to hear you say that the size of the continent actually doubles when the ice is in season. The sea ice expands to the point where the continent doubles. It is a system utterly dominated by the formation of sea ice, just like the Arctic Ocean has um, developed over the years. And so when you start to see that sea ice melting, because we're putting so many greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, all the creatures have evolved in some way with the sea ice, whether they hide under it in the winter, etc. You then see these rippling ecological changes. It's almost equivalent, Rick, to um, a forest ecosystem that loses its trees. This, this vast solitude you must feel in Antarctica is hard for somebody who's not been there to understand. Can we just close with you describing what it's like to be there to watch the sea freeze? You wrote about how you can actually see it freezing, and then tell us about the sounds you hear when you listen to the ice. Yes, my favorite place at the station was to go up in the, the summer evenings where the sun scarcely set about 11 o'clock atop the glacier behind the station, and I could look out in the evening as the sun was going down over on the really clear evenings in the early season, there would be nothing but this frozen table of sea ice in front of me. And to my left, the mountains of the Antarctic Peninsula, which rise to 10,000 feet, plunging right into the Southern Ocean. And you stand up there, it is a feeling of utter insignificance. It is so vast, it is so untouched by uh, humans that we have no sort of scale against which to measure it. I know one of Ernest Shackleton's men said, this is not earth, this is heavenly, and that's how you feel. And when you stand up there, it's complete silence, just the sound of the wind and occasional screech of a bird. It's by far the most beautiful place I've ever been, and it's hard to put into words or even pictures to convey the scope of this completely uninhabited wild uh, world of ice. I'm speaking with Fen Montaigne, and he's uh, written a book sharing his experience working in Antarctica called Fraser's Penguins. Fen, you talked about how Bill Fraser actually would watch the sea freeze. What's it like to see the sea freeze? Well, Fraser was on a winter cruise in the Weddell Sea where Ernest Shackleton and his men were marooned for, for well over a year. And he described that it was so cold, and they were near the edge of where the sea ice meets the open ocean, the sea would be looking like liquid, looking like seawater, and all of a sudden it would get this sort of gray, almost oily film on it, and then it would literally start freezing in these pancake-like sections. And overnight, this area that had been open water would be for miles in front of the, the ship where he was, uh, ice that was probably an inch, even two inches thick. It literally happened before his eyes, and, and it's that part of Antarctica, the Weddell Sea, is just that cold. And with the ebb and the flow of the freeze, you can also stand all alone and hear the ice cracking and falling into the sea? Absolutely. When Bill Fraser first got down to Palmer Station in the mid-'70s, he would ski 
at night in a full moon over the sea ice within a three or four miles of the station. And he would stand out at night with the moonlight falling on the sea ice and these 10,000-foot mountains in the distance. His breath would be uh, rising out of his nostrils. And he could stand there, and as the ice froze and shifted, there would be these loud reports, almost like gunshots of the ice cracking. Moments like that are what hooked Bill and have kept him coming back to Antarctica now since uh, 1974. And he's clearly inspired you. Uh, your enthusiasm for this is contagious. What lesson do you hope your book will share from all the hard work you've done? Well, uh, what I would hope it would do is that people will read it and get a sense of what an absolutely breathtaking, intricate, and perfect place the, the Antarctic is, having evolved over millions of years and with all this ice that is integral to uh, the ecosystem there, and that what's happening now is we, from our activities, are beginning to change that, and we are beginning to change it rapidly. You know, human civilization evolved over 12,000 years in a very stable climate, and what we're doing now is we're starting to poke that, that beast. I hope people will read this, come away with great affection for the place and Bill Frazier, and think, hey, you know, we really ought to start taking some more serious steps to uh, to slow down what's happening to the icy regions of the Earth like Antarctica and the Arctic. So if we could give one of those cute tuxedoed penguins the microphone right now, and if they could speak, what would they tell us? <laughs> well, I think what they would say is, uh, uh, if they could speak directly to us, is uh, don't take the ice away. We need this for our very existence. So uh, whatever you got to do, kind of uh, cool the heat a little bit and let us keep our ice. Ben Montaigne, thank you so much. Best wishes with your work. And uh, this Fraser's Penguins, A Journey to the Future in Antarctica, is a good book to check out if you want to gain an empathy for those cute little tuxedoed penguins. Thanks a lot, Ben. Thank you, Rick. It was a real pleasure. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York for their help with today's show. We have links to our guests in the radio section of ricksteves.com, and we'll see you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick's weekly one-hour radio program, Travel with Rick Steves, airs in more than 130 cities across the country. Help yourself to free podcasts of past shows and Rick's audio tours of Europe's greatest sites in the radio section of our website. For the latest on Rick's radio and TV work, his guidebooks and his European tours with small groups, visit ricksteves.com.